if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, Exodus chapter 7. Believe it or not, we're going to cover four chapters today. Somebody said, how are you going to do that? And I said, very efficiently this morning. So, Exodus 7, we're going to read, actually, the, the first of, uh, it's the second of the miraculous signs, but the first of the actual plagues in this plague narrative, 7 to 10, and then we're going to read the ninth one, and then we'll come back to uh, number 10 down the road. But uh, Exodus chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 14. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a blue and white one around you, or a blue one around you. Feel free to use that this morning as your own. We'll read the first, and then we'll read the uh, end. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this shall you, you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh went and turned into his house, and he did not even take this, did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. And if you'll turn over to chapter 10, we're going to read 21 to 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. 
for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you're uh, new or if you missed a couple weeks, I want to encourage you to go back to last week. We did kind of an introduction to uh, the, the plagues. And we said the plagues are not just uh, diseases, kind of uh, punish being, punishment being levied here, but they're rather miraculous signs pointing to something deeper uh, in the heart of God, right? And so uh, last week we talked about three patterns. So if you're freaking out about what's this language around the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, Go back last week, we did a whole message on kind of these three patterns that you see throughout uh, Exodus chapter 7 to 10, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, uh, the judgment that God brings to that, the confrontation that God brings to that, and then the mercy that God shows in the midst of these uh, judgments, these miraculous interventions. So let me just bring you up to speed and rewind for a second and put uh, Exodus 7 to 10 in the larger context of the book of Exodus. It's important that you understand what's happening here because there's a lot going on in chapter 7 to 10 and and I want to make sure that we understand this context. So if you remember back to Exodus chapter 1, Exodus starts with the people of God living. Remember God relocates them into Egypt through Joseph at the end of Genesis chapter, at the end of uh, the book of Genesis, right? So this is Moses, the author and editor, writing the first five books of the Bible And he's describing the relocation of God's people into the land of Egypt. And it it tells us, Moses tells us at the very beginning, that the people begin to multiply, right? They they increase in the land. Now, those words are really interesting because they're the same words that are found in the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 1. So when we see swarms of insects teeming with life, right, that word teeming there is the same word for increase that you see in Exodus 1. So what what Moses is trying to get us to see is uh, Exodus 1 is really just an extension of Genesis chapter 1. The people of God are doing what God's told them to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over the earth. That's that's what's happening here in Exodus chapter 1. There's teeming uh, people now, not insects. There's abundance, right? There's flourishing. There is fruitfulness. They're multiplying families, right? And what happens is, this abundance, this, this uh, fulfilling of what you might call the, the cultural mandate, the creation mandate in Genesis 1, uh, is not received as a gift from this maniacal sociopath named Pharaoh, right? We know Pharaoh probably is, is King Tut, right? This is about the 15th century. And so this is not received as a gift as it was intended to be, but rather is seen as a threat to Pharaoh. And we actually see Chapter 1, verse 12, Pharaoh says, this is a problem. These foreigners, these immigrants, these refugees have become a stench. They have become a national security threat. So he sponsors this statewide genocide of God's people. They begin to throw babies into the Nile. They begin to uh, murder, right? They begin to exploit. They begin to put them under slavery, right? And what we have here is, in a sense, Pharaoh becoming kind of a living embodiment of an anti-creator, right? So God creates in Genesis 1. Pharaoh is essentially kind of an anti-creator. He's undermining God's vision 
for human flourishing. He is representative of a whole system uh, as kind of, the, he's kind of the head, he's the false god who rivals the one true God, Yahweh. And, and he creates this system around him, and last week we talked about this, this weaving together of threads of what we see is this system of idolatry, this system of injustice, and this system of false worship, right? That's, that's what's kind of happening here is Pharaoh has created an entire civilization that's built on not the worship of the one true God, but the worship of false gods, not the justice that God designed the universe to experience in Genesis chapter 1, but injustice, and again, not the worship of God, but idolatry, the worshiping of false gods. And so he creates this very intricate system, right? That's all we see here. It's a system that, that kind of flows out of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and the hardness of the hearts of the, the Pharaohs before him, right? It's a religious system. It's a political system. It's a technological system. It's an ideological system. It is a spiritual system. Like all of these things are coming together and forming this system of idolatry and injustice. So what we see then in Exodus 7 is God revealing himself. The plagues are first and foremost about revelation, right? They're not first and foremost about judgment. They are first and foremost about God revealing himself. God saying something about his heart and his character and his nature. This is an attempt to essentially restore Genesis chapter 1 into the world, right? God is showing up and saying, this is not ultimate reality. What you see in the Pharaoh is not ultimate. It is not true. It's not the true story of the world. And so the, the plagues or these miraculous signs are, are public acts of judgment and deliverance so that everyone, not only in Egypt, but he said, he's going to go on to say in chapter 9, everyone forever. Like this story will re be retold over and over and over again so that everyone might know who the one true God is. Everyone might know God's heart for human flourishing. At least, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six times God says throughout chapter 7 and 10, I am the Lord your God. I'm doing this so that Egypt might know that I'm the Lord, so that Moses might know that I'm the Lord, so that the Israelites might know, right? Because when you're under the burden of oppression, you forget, right? Your vision gets very narrowed. You forget what it means to live as a free son or daughter, right? That the image of God in them have been corrupted. And so we see God stepping in to say, hey, enough, right? Enough. I mean, we read later in Exodus that God is slow to anger, but here's the thing, he'll eventually get there. God is slow to anger, but he will eventually get around to anger. God's compassion, we said last week, always involves confrontation. And that's good news, right? If you are oppressed, that is good news. Now, if you're the, the bourgeois, you know, if you're like the ruling class, that's bad news. But it's good news for the Israelites, and it's good news for us. God gets angry when his name is being trampled on. God gets angry when his image bearers are being dehumanized. And so he brings these plagues as public revelation. This is who I am. This is who Pharaoh is. This is who you are, Israel. This is what I'm doing in the world. So let me just give you a quick little slide. This is the structure of the plagues. They're, th this is beautiful literary device actually happening here. So my mom's an English teacher. 
I was trained as like a liter- literary analyst, if you will, from the time that I was little. I was forced into, you know, heavy burdens of reading and sentence diagramming as a young child, you know, and still kind of have some trauma around that. Uh, but, but the pl- I mean, it is beautiful the way that Moses composes this. It's, it's not primarily given as like a factual account of just facts and data, right, and, and, and words. There's a theological point that Moses is making, so it's structured actually very theologically around some key themes. And so you see them grouped into threes, right? So we have the Nile turning to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the animals, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness. And so you see kind of a progression here from the annoyance of the, you could say the annoyance of the contamination of the Nile, which is essentially what's happening in Plague One, to the frogs coming on the land to uh, many people believe as the frogs died, then uh, there, was, uh, there was kind of a release of gnats, right? Like there's a progression here. Each one starts in the morning at the top, one, four, and seven, with a confrontation around the water, which is kind of the symbol of life and economic vitality and flourishing in Egypt. And then the last one, each one comes without warning. The gnats, the boils, and the darkness come with no warning, right? And there's a progression from slight annoyances, right, like frogs, uh, weird and pesky, but then you get to livestock dying, plague five is the first time something dies. Uh, Six, we see disease and skin diseases. Uh, We don't know exactly what that is. Could be an outbreak of anthrax, some people actually think. Um, Two, now towards the end, the devastation of the land, which was a big deal again when you didn't have 401ks and like Roths and security, like your life was in your land. So we see the eventual devastation. Then we're going to go all the way to 10, which we'll get to here in a few weeks, with the death of firstborn. So we see increasing intensity throughout these plagues. This is, you could call, I guess you could call this ecological warfare, right? This is ecological warfare, but it's with a divine purpose, right? This is an attack on all these plagues or an attack on Egyptian idolatry and injustice. Egyptian idolatry and injustice. Notice in chapter 12, verse 12, when God brings the, he begins to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, what does he say about the purpose of the plagues? On all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments on all of these false gods. He is deconstructing a system of idolatry. And each of these plagues, many scholars believe, are actually an attack on an Egyptian god or multiple Egyptian gods to whom uh, these Egyptians and Pharaoh would have given their devotion, their loyalty, and their affection. So look at this next chart here. You can see we don't have time to get into all of these. Do we have have that next chart, Michael? There we go. Um, So you can see, and this is just a sampling of how uh, many people believe God is attacking these these gods, so you have in the Nile plague the, the kind of the deconstruction of Hopi. Hopi was the, the god uh, or goddess of fertility and of success, right? And again, the entire kind of Egyptian world was built around the mythology of the Nile, right? This idea that the Nile had special powers and was, was kind of the, the way that the gods brought life and vitality and fertility to Egyptian culture. We also see that in the second plague with the frogs, right? Hecate was uh, kind of this like frog goddess and so uh, was supposed to bring like business success and and flourishing and and career success. 
So we go on down and you can see how these different gods, God is systematically saying, false God, true God. False God, true God. You cannot find joy and life and vitality and happiness anywhere else other than the one true and living God. That's the point of the plagues. God is deconstructing idolatry, but he's also deconstructing and bringing judgment on injustice, right? We see in the Nile, for instance, like again, the Nile and the frogs, the first two, it's no accident that they start with the Nile, right? What, what happens in Exodus chapters 1 and 2 with the oppression, right? Pharaoh throws babies into the Nile, children into the Nile, and now Moses says, hey, you want to you wanna murder my children? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack the very source of your economy and your religion, right? These are attacks on, he's, he's turning the plagues against the Pharaoh, right? He's saying, you want to commit genocide, I'll destroy the very source of your economy, your religion. We see it uh, also in um, the boils, for instance. The boils, Moses is told to, to take ash, to take ashes from the kiln and to throw them up. It's like a LeBron James, like he throws them up in the air, right? What, what's, the sim, what's the symbolism there? It's not just some random act there. When he's taking the kiln from the, uh, he's taking the, the soot, the ashes from the kiln, it's a reference to the, the making of bricks, right? He's saying, you've made my people, you forced my people into slavery, making bricks for you. I'm going to take that very thing and make it the source of your own disease and affliction. So over and over and over again, we see it again in the firstborn children. You're going to kill my firstborn children? Fine, I'll kill yours. That's, that's what's happening. It's an attack. It's a confrontation against idolatry and injustice. So I want to spend the majority of our time today. Last week, we kind of closed with a, a thought, a little nugget, and I want to kind of pick that back up and then kind of take our time today and, and say it again and kind of dig a little bit deeper into the contour. So last week I ended uh, our talk by saying most of us tend to read ourselves into the story as whom? Israel, right? Nobody in here wants to be Egypt. Everybody tends to read themselves into the narrative as Israel. We are the ones who are oppressed. We are the ones who are suffering. We are the ones who need to be delivered. And we all have in our minds like a picture. If I just said to you, who is Pharaoh in your life right now? Like you could probably conjure up pretty quickly, like your boss, coworker, your spouse. I mean, there's, I, don't, I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but like th- there's always a tendency that we have to externalize evil and injustice in the world and to see it as out there somewhere. But last week we closed and actually said all of us have a little Pharaoh living inside of us. Even if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you're a mixture of both Pharaoh and Israel. All of us have a little Pharaoh living in us. All of us have this heart sickness, right? This hard-heartedness that lives inside of us like a cancer. And it metastasizes, and it's rotting us from the inside out. That's what we're seeing here in the plagues. We are seeing God exposing the rot inside the heart of Pharaoh and inside this Egyptian system. And God's doing surgery, right, to cut out this cancer, and to bring health and life and flourishing once again to his people. So I want us to talk about this sickness in terms of us. Like, what does it actually look like? Like, we are not so different from Pharaoh. We are still asking the question to God that Pharaoh asked in chapter 5. Who is God that I should obey him? Who's God to tell me what to do? We have 
hard-heartedness. We have sickness. And so I want to talk about the sickness of idolatry that still lives in us. And then the injustice that creates, and then the cure that God brings to our idolatry. So let's look at idolatry. We see, again, an entire system built around false gods, right? The Nile, frogs, bulls, right? The land, like, you know, sky gods, gods of the afterlife. We see this very intricate system of idolatry. And we sometimes think, well, we don't do that. Like, we think of idolatry as just, like, totems and, like, magic and voodoo and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, that's, that's what, like, you know, people outside of America do. But, like, no, idolatry is a very real thing. It's one of the core themes of the Bible. So what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it look like to say that we are all idolaters? One theologian a long time, so long, long time ago said the heart is an idol factory, manufacturing false gods. So let me give you some definitions. Tim Keller in his great book, Counterfeit God, says it like this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Does that start to bring it down? Anything you give the title of your heart to, anything you give your imagination to, anything you give your affection to that's not the one true God. Andy Crouch says it like this, another author. Idolatry is the biblical name for the human capacity for creative power to run amok. An idol advances a claim about the ultimate nature of reality that is ultimately mistaken. And since the creator God is the ultimate meaning of the world, an idol is a representation of a false god. Implicitly or explicitly, all idols represent a challenge and a counterclaim to the identity and character of the true creator God. Like the serpent in the garden, they all raise the question of the creator God's truthfulness and goodness, subtly or directly suggesting that the creator God is neither true nor now, here's the thing about idolatry. Idolatry never stays contained in the human heart. It always spills over into our relationships. It spills over into, like, you're a business owner. It will spill over into the way you run your business. You're a manager. It will spill over into your management. You're a student. It will spill over into your dorm room or your fraternity or your sorority, right? If you're a parent, it will spill over into your marriage and into your kids, right? It's never just contained. Like, it's not something that we keep, like, saran-wrapped, right? It's something that just has this explosive ability to just kind of, like, you know, vomit itself up on everything around us. Idolatry inevitably, always, necessarily leads to injustice, right? The root of injustice, as a matter of fact— it's not just a lack of education. It's not the wrong political theory, right? It's not uh, just the, the inequalities between the rich and the poor. The roots of injustice, biblically speaking, is the idolatry of the human heart, just writ large, right? That's what's happening in the story. Idolatry leads to the distortion of God's justice. It leads to the distortion, the perversion of justice. It moves us from a place of communion with God, which is where we're created in Genesis 1 to experience like wholeness, right? Relationship with God being the central, central reality, the organizing reality of our heart. What happens in Genesis 3 is that gets perverted. It gets distorted. It gets twisted by the evil one. 
And now communion moves to competition. Communion moves to competition. Now no longer is it about us together relating to God. It is about me competing with you for goods and services, right? It's about me competing with you for status, approval, power, control. We see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, that the fundamental sin of human beings is that we exchange the truth of God, the worship of God, the beauty of God, the goodness of God, the centrality of God for a lie. And we begin to worship created things rather than the creator who is forever blessed, Paul says. Amen. And then we see issuing out of that fundamental idolatry all the sins, right? Like the list in Romans 1, envy, murder, gossip, even says disobeying your parents. Like all of that flows out of a heart level idolatry. And it leads to injustice. It leads to God's name, God's power, God's goodness, God's purposes in the world being falsified. That's what injustice is about. That's what idolatry is about. It is false representation. It's fraud. Misrepresentation of God. Reality gets distorted. The dignity and creativity of his image bearers get stripped away. We have now the powerless who are now powerless to resist violence and domination and exploitation. And so they begin to walk in shame, right? No longer thinking that they have dignity, value, and worth. The powerless now walk around being completely ashamed, feeling like I'm not worthy. I'm dehumanized. This is the corruption of idolatry and injustice. All at the service of powerful, godlike pharaohs. This is why when we get to Exodus 20, the first command of the Ten Commandments is what? Don't have any false gods. Why? Because the rest of the Ten Commandments, the other nine, are rooted in this reality, right? Like, the roots of all injustice are expressed in the rest of the commands, come back to their experience in Egypt, and he's saying, hey, learn from your experience in Egypt. Idolatry always leads to injustice. Martin Luther said that so many generations ago. The first command kind of sets the table for the rest. We must deal with idolatry if we're going to deal with injustice in the world. If we're going to deal with injustice in the world, we have to deal with the idolatry of our own hearts. So there's a cycle to how this works. What, what does idolatry actually look like? We see this in the story of Pharaoh and the story of the plagues. Let me just uh, give you a little framework here that maybe can make sense and will help this get some traction in your own heart. And I just want you to think about how you might see this playing out in your own life. Like, what is idolatry? What are the contours and the shape of idolatry? What does that look like for you? What does the little Pharaoh inside of you look like? There's a pattern, but then there's specifics that are unique to each person. The first piece of this kind of cycle idolatry that we see in the book of Exodus is that it makes promises. Idols always make promises. They, they promise to make us like gods, right? This goes back to Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent shows up. The first promise that's whispered to, it's actually two, part of the same thing. The first promise that's whispered from the evil one is what? You will be like God and you won't die. So the serpent comes and he plays on the good things that God designed us to experience as human beings. He plays on our ambition, right? You will be like God. I mean, think about that, right? It's a distortion of the way that we're designed. The word, uh, did you know um, when it says that we're made in the image of God in Genesis chapter 1? 
He created men and women in his image. That word image, to sell them in the Hebrew, uh, is the word for idol. It's the word for icon. We were actually meant to be idols, representations of God. We were meant to be God-like in the best kind of way, to represent God and reflect his purposes in the world. And so the enemy comes and says, hey, you could really be God. You could not just be like God, you could actually be God, have God-like power. So he plays and he distorts ambition. And then he plays on the sense of vulnerability and mortality that we have as human beings. You will not die. See how subtle and crafty idolatry is? It makes promises to us. It, it takes good things and tries to promise ultimate things. It promises to deliver on how God created us and to protect us from the vulnerabilities of what it means to be human. But here's the catch. It has to be done apart from God. The promises of the serpent were, you can do these things, but you don't need God. You don't need God to sustain you. You don't need God's presence to empower you. You can have all of the gifts of the image of God without God himself. That's the promise of idolatry. It takes good things and tries to make them ultimate things. It takes good things and tries to make them transcendent things. Now, that's what we see in Pharaoh. That's what we see in Egypt taking a good thing like river and saying ultimate, taking a good thing like the land, taking a good thing like technology and saying ultimate, transcendent, it will protect you, it will give you life and vitality, flourishing. And it, here's the thing, second cycle, second piece of the cycle is it works. <laughs> That's why it's so subtle. It actually works. There's success we see Egypt prospering in certain kinds of ways, technologically, materially, right? They're prospering. We see progress in Egypt, like unknown in the ancient world. And, and success happens when we take uh, these, these whispers of the idols and we seek mastery over the chaotic forces of nature. And for a while, we get under the spell, under the illusion that we're actually controlling our fate that we're actually controlling the world around us, that we can actually curate life apart from God for ourselves. But then the third thing always happens is that it leads to slavery. It leads to slavery because it demands, an idol always demands our love, it demands our trust, and it demands our full obedience. Do this or you will die. That's what an idol says, right? Do this or you will die. And eventually what happens is it doesn't work, right? It stops working as predictably. It gets kind of inconsistent. There's intermittent returns instead of predictable returns. There's diminishing returns and escalating demands. We have to try harder and harder and harder, and it delivers less and less and less. Here's the interesting thing about the, magici the magicians in this story is they're actually, through the first couple plagues, they're able to replicate the miracles of God. But here's the interesting thing about that. The magicians can only multiply pain. They can't take it away, which is kind of funny because you're like, God brings frogs, and they're like, we can do that too. Here's more frogs. <laughs> like, you can turn this into blood. We can do that too. I mean, they just multiply. You're like, hey, stop it. Like, stop doing that. I want to see you take it away. The miracles of God are not just that he brings them, but that he removes them, Right? Like, that's amazing. And so they can only multiply pain. Idols only multiply pain. They cannot take it away. They actually make it worse. Idols ask for more and more while giving less and less. 
until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. We see it end in ruin, failure. We see it end with hard hearts and an oppressive empire. And so God unleashes his judgment on this system of gods and idolatry and injustice. It's a reversal of creation, right? It's a reversal of creation. God here, taking us back to Genesis 1, 1 and 2, begins to unravel creation before Pharaoh's very eyes to say, these things will never satisfy you. These idols will never deliver. This is not the way that I designed a just universe to work. This is not how I've designed the human heart to work. He sends everything in reverse. Water no longer brings life. It contaminates and brings death. Animals no longer serve human beings. Instead, they invade like armies. Light returns to darkness and life to the dust. Creation heads back into its dark and chaotic state. Everything falls apart. That's what's happening as we give ourselves to idols. The result of giving ourselves to idols elevating anything other than God to the level of God is utter disintegration. Utter disintegration. Everything falls apart when we run against the grain of God's design. That's why there's Genesis 1 language all throughout the plagues. All, I mean, the same words. It's showing us how God turns us over to our idols and how they ultimately break our hearts. They ruin our relationships and they devastate our society. same thing that we see here in our life. Now, I don't know what this looks like for you. I don't know what idolatry looks like for you. I can tell you, like, how do you know when you're under the sway of an idol? I know what it looks like for me. I, I have s- serious idolatry issues, just so you know. So pastors don't get exempt from this. We don't get, like, a card that we get to lay down and play here. Um, like, for me, this looks like control. This looks like comfort. And anything that I can do to avoid pain or failure. I will do anything to avoid failure. I will do anything to avoid pain. I will give myself to the promises that you will not die and you can be like God. If it has to do with control, like when I get the angriest with my children, and I do get angry with my children sometimes, when I get the angriest at my friends, it's when they attack my idols of control and comfort, I lose my mind. I mean, I'm not by nature an angry person, but I can snap on a dime when somebody steps into the space of where I feel like I'm in control or I'm, I'm trying to pursue some kind of comfort. I either check out or I get angry. That's the shape of idolatry in my heart. Now, I don't know what it looks like for you. We could talk about all kinds of different idols. Maybe for you it looks like control. I mean, good night. From the time we graduate from high school, like our lives are about control, right? Especially in a place like Broderpool. It's like, what's the plan, right? What's the plan? Well, I'm going to go to college and accumulate a bunch of debt. Uh, Then I'm going to go and call onto that debt and get a master's. And then uh, maybe a doctorate. Or I'm going to take my boards and become, like, we have our lives so scripted out, so controlled. I'm going to wait to get married because I want to make sure that I have my life all lined up, right? And we curate like an entire culture around this idea of controlling our happiness and our joy, right? Down to like the food that we eat, the, the health routines that we have. I mean, it's all ultimately rooted in, is it not a lot of it, control. I want to control my body. I want to control my mind. I want to have mastery over the chaos of the world. And I'll use technology 
I'll use my marriage to do that. Some of us, it's like, no, I'm not going to get married. I'll use my singleness to do that. It's a way of controlling my life because then I don't have to submit to anyone. Use my business that way. Use my sexuality that way. That's what pornography is all about, right? It's all about controlling reality. Intimacy without risk and exposure and surrender. I can have it instantaneously, anytime that I want, right to my phone. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's work for you, right? Like work is that thing that you give yourself to, and it whispers the promise of here's life, here's vitality, here's flourishing. And for a while, it, it works. Like you put in more hours, and you make more money. But then like you get into your late 30s, early 40s, 50s, and you begin to realize, oh my gosh, this thing is failing me. It's becoming a pharaoh in my life. It's becoming an oppressive thing. And the more time I give to it, the more I actually see my interior world and the things that really matter in life deteriorate. And all of a sudden, I find myself serving this God called work, serving this God called my company, serving this God called medicine, serving this God called art always fail and it demands everything from us and it takes everything from us you give yourself to work and you find yourself empty and alone oftentimes in your 50s and 60s because you gave your heart and your soul to it in your 20s and 30s there's nothing left and it's like a cats in the cradle modern day version of cats in the cradle this can happen with relationships this can happen with money man like money is such an idol for so many of us me included if i can just make enough money It'll protect me from the chaos of life. I mean, is, is, it, is economics really anything? Uh, there's actually an economist who made a case for this in a book. Um, is it anything but magic? Like, I can control economic theories, and I can do all this planning, and I've got a financial planner. Again, good things. I hope that you have a financial planner. Like, it's good to plan, the proverb says. But when it becomes ultimate, right, when it becomes the thing that we're chasing, we organize our lives around that, it will fail us. It becomes an idol. We can do this with our children, Right? We have all this perfectionism around our kids. If I don't get them in the right piano lessons and violin lessons and ball leagues. And I remember people coming to us when my son was five. And like, you've got to get into travel ball. This is like the new idol, travel ball. Like, if you don't get your kids in travel ball by age five, they're done. They're not playing high school ball. I'm like, okay, I guess my kid's not playing high school ball. I'm not, I'm not raising the next, next Steph Curry. I know my genes, right? Like, I know that's not going anywhere. But how easy it is for those things, again, good things, having children a good thing, right? Getting married a good thing, work a good thing, food, good thing. But when we try to seek transcendence out of it, it becomes a God. And it will destroy. It will take everything that you have. By the way, I'm not just talking here religiously as a Christian. Everybody sees this. One of my favorite commencement speeches, Josh and I quote this all the time, from David Foster Wallace, not a believer in Jesus, points this out about everybody. It's the human condition, he says. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, 2005, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You hit one benchmark and then you're on to the next. Like just a little bit more, a little bit more. That's the word of an idol whispering to you, a little bit more. 
a little bit more. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, although they are. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings of the human heart. So what do we do with all of this rampant idolatry? Not just out there in the world, like in this room, in your heart, in my heart. What do we do? What is God doing in the plagues to deliver people from idolatry and injustice? The cure for idolatry and injustice is not to simply tear down idols and to go after those idols and to go after injustice directly. You can't even do that. The cure, God says throughout the plagues, is know me. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who delivers you. Right? So we see, again, God's mercy over and over and over again. This is the condition of the human heart, and it will, take an, it will take an act of God to intervene and to bring about salvation and freedom and liberation from those things that enslave us. And we see God's mercy to the Israelites throughout the plague narratives. Uh, he, he, he begins to distinguish after the third plague between Israel and Egypt, and he says, no longer will these inflict uh, my people, I'm going to set them up over here in Goshen, and they will not experience the plagues. God makes distinctions, not because the Israelites were awesome or because they were worthy, but because of God's mercy. So if anybody knows God in this room, if anybody experiences deliverance from idols, it is not because you are awesome. It is not because you are deserving, because you're smart enough, because your dad was a deacon, because you grew up in church. It is the mercy of God on your life. So we ought to be the humblest people in the world as we move out and we talk to our friends about their idolatry, about their injustice, as we tweet at them and we, we hashtag against them, we first and foremost should understand that we don't deserve any of this and that we should be super humble because God makes a distinction not on the basis of human will or exertion, Paul says in Romans 9, because he loves to show compassion on whom he will show compassion. Not only is he merciful to the Israelites, but he's also merciful to the Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. We see halfway through the narrative in chapter 8 that they begin to recognize what they call the finger of God at work in their lives. The finger of God is at work, and they begin to, some of them, even fear God in chapter 9, and we'll see in chapter 12, many of them will leave. There's a mixed multitude that leaves Egypt. Even some of the Egyptians get Relief, And we see God continually offering mercy to Pharaoh throughout. Pharaoh, if you will relent, I will rescue you. I will relent. But we see the response of somebody held under the sway of idolatry. It's the same response that many of us find ourselves in now. It's not repentance. It's relief. Over and over and over, Pharaoh says, okay, that's it, stop. I've sinned, God. Please bring relief. And as soon as God brings relief, what does he do? Nope. Hardens his heart again. Doesn't let the people go. I mean, this kind of negotiating back and forth, this half-hearted surrender that you see in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 
is a fear-based, selfish relief that doesn't want to know God, but just doesn't want to experience the consequences. True repentance is not the seeking of relief from our idols. It is a seeking to know God. It's not fear-based. It's love-based. To fear God is not, the opposite of fearing God in chapter 9 is not like just trembling before God like he's some abusive father. To fear God literally says there to pay attention to God more than you're paying attention to false gods. So the idea here is that we turn away from false gods, that's the heart of repentance, and we turn towards God in concrete expressions of faith. Like they bring in their cattle, they leave Egypt. These are, these are marks of repentance. They're actually doing something about it. But it's rooted in knowing God. Not fearing idols. We break the power of idols by loving God more. Not by rejecting his good gifts. 1 John chapter 5, we'll close with this. John says this, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Isn't that interesting? Little children, keep yourself from greed. Little children, keep yourself from fear. Little children, keep yourself from legalism. Little children, keep yourself from breaking the commands of God. How do we do that? By loving God. And we don't love God, it says, he first loved us. We must be overcome, our imaginations must be overcome with a love and a power greater than that of idols. That's the invitation for us in terms of idolatry is see it for what it is. Admit it for what it is. Like, admit that you have idols in your heart. See the idol of power. See the idol of approval. See the idol of control and name it. Say it. That's what it is. I love myself more than I love my neighbor. I love myself more than I love God. But then realize that in the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of all of the kind of the the injustice that that creates around you, God has come into the world to save you. He's come into the world to rescue you. He came under the darkness and the chaos of judgment, Jesus did. To deliver us. That's why he says, he quotes Exodus and says, if I come among you delivering with the finger of God from demons, then you know the kingdom of God has come. He came undone so that we could be remade into God's sons and daughters. That love is the only thing that rescues us from the power of idolatry. To know that I'm loved means I'm free to not have to exert power. To know that I'm loved means I'm free from caring what you think about me. To to know the love of God means I don't have to hold on to security and comfort. I don't have to be in control. I don't have to be in control of this church. I don't have to be in control of my family. I don't have to be be in control of the destiny of my children. They are safe in the hands of God, and so am I, and so are you. That is the invitation 
in the good news of Exodus is that God has come to smash idols, to cure injustice, and to bring healing into our hearts and into our world. That's what he did in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we celebrate every week here at communion. This reality that God has come with the kingdom to bring us into a relationship with him, to heal us from our idolatry and our injustice. So I want to encourage you just to take a moment. Let's bow our heads. Let's take a moment and let's really ask God to give us a spirit of repentance, to not be like Pharaoh with half-hearted surrenders and bargaining and negotiating and quid pro quo agreements with God, but to simply lay all that stuff on the table and say, God, I want to know you. God, I want to trust you. I want to experience your love for me, and I want that to break the power of idolatry and injustice in my life. And if that's you, if that's the, the cry of your heart, that you know that God first loved you, and then in response, you get to respond with heartfelt love and joy and gratitude and wonder and awe, then we'd invite you to come receive this assurance this morning in communion that God is with you and he's for you and he hasn't abandoned you. We, the way we celebrate that here at Summer, we, we have stations in the front, stations in the back. Come and take a piece of bread, tear it off, dip it into the cup, and then return to your seat. If that's not you, if you're just like, man, I just want relief, or I'm not even into God. Okay, we're so glad that you're here. Maybe this is the first step in your journey. It's just a, a journey of awareness. Step one is awareness. This is where I'm at. Okay, it's okay to not be okay. But we also want to say it's not okay to stay there. Join us in the journey of knowing God and being known by him. And so we want to invite you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to stay in your seat as others come. So let me pray for us. We'll take communion and we'll sing and send you back out.